You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. My name is Anne Genovese and I'm extremely uh, pleased and honoured to welcome you all here today for the first uh, conversation in ILLA's Festival of Conversations. Um, the purpose of the event is as part of a series, is to commemorate and celebrate communities of scholars in doing work that has brought um, innovations in humanities methodology, um, forms of critique and innovation into conversation uh, with law and the projects that lawyers, I think everybody in this community uh, sees our obligation um, to attend to when we look from the world around us. Um, I'm not going to give the formal acknowledgement today. I'm going to hand that over to our speakers. My role is very simple. It is to monitor the chat, uh, to remind you that we are being recorded and to um, introduce Joanna. So it is a real pleasure to introduce you to Joanna Commons. Jo is a PhD student here at um, Melbourne Law School. She's an integral part of our ILA um, PhD cohort and this particular, particular juncture in time. Um, jo is from New Zealand, which is an important uh, element in her um, personal biography, but also how she has learnt to bring her own uh, take to how do we think from where you learn your scholarship and she has um, uh, brought those two elements of both law and humanities into her daily life and into her scholarship and practice. So Joe has worked extensively uh, as a lawyer, particularly in um, migration and refugee um, uh, jurisdiction, but she also has a master's in literature and literary theory. She's studying uh, um, with Peter Rush and myself. Her project is fantastic, is to think about can we, how might we understand Margaret Atwood's uh, text, The Handmaid's Tale, as a jurisprudential text, which informs lots of questions about genre and textuality and how we think in between law and humanities scholarship as a law and literature project. Um, I am also personally really pleased that uh, Jo has initiated this first conversation um, for the festival with Margaret Thornton, who she's going to introduce to you in a moment. But Margaret has been an absolutely uh, integral mentor and support to me and many, many, many people here in this room today is a senior figure for many of us in feminist jurisprudence and law and humanities scholarship in Australia. And we are so delighted, Margaret, that you can be with us. So um, I'm going to hand over to Joe now and I'll um, uh, come in at the end when we uh, to conduct the question time. Thanks, Joe. Thank you very much, Anne. Um, I would like to begin today by acknowledging that I live and work on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Uh, Professor Margaret Thornton joins us today from her office at the ANU uh, College of Law. And so I pay my respects to elders past and present of the Nunawal country. Um, I extend a warm welcome to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander uh, peoples who join us today, either live or at a later stage who listen to this recording. Um, so I'm going to uh, start by introducing Margaret. 
Um, and I also just wanted to say thank you to all of you who have come along today. Um, thank you to Sundia Pahuja, the director of the Institute for initiating uh, this festival in celebration of the Institute. And thank you very much to Annabelle Donkin, who um, is our administrator extraordinaire on this occasion. Um, how we come to know people is important. Margaret, I first encountered you virtually when you gave a talk titled Coronavirus and the Colonization of Private Life at a webinar put on by the Helsinki Inequality Institute and the ANU Gender Institute uh, in August 2020. In what we thought would be the year of the pandemic, which has turned into two years and counting. I then had the pleasure of reading some of your work for a feminist legal theory masterclass that Anne delivered last year. And at the same time, the Ella Reading Group was focusing on the theme of the university. And in that setting, uh, we looked at a chapter from your book, Privatizing the Public University, The Case of Law. Romancing the tones is of particular interest to me as a law and humanities student uh, researching and writing in Australia. Uh, at the risk of annoying Margaret, I'm just going to take this moment to pay homage to her contribution to uh, feminist and Australian legal scholarship. Uh, Margaret, you completed a BA with honours in ancient history at the University of Sydney and went on to complete an LLB at the University of New South Wales. You were awarded a Fulbright scholarship and completed an LLM at Yale University while simultaneously raising a young family there. Over the course of your career, you have taught a dizzying amount of law subjects at UNSW, Macquarie, La Trobe, Sydney and ANU, and that's only here in Australia. You are the author of numerous books, articles, reviews, shorter pieces and uh, media pieces. Your first book, The Liberal Promise, was published in 1990 and concerned discrimination law in Australia, an area in which you are a pioneering expert. You have made submissions to government and provided expertise to different government bodies on discrimination law over many years. You have researched and written extensively on women working in the law, spanning legal practice, the judiciary, the academy, and contributed to the Australian iteration of the Feminist Justice Project. I could go on, but I won't. Um, but it just remains for me to say, Margaret, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today as part of this Festival of Conversations. Um, it's a real thrill for me, so thank you. I also wanted to uh, just acknowledge that I think we have in the audience um, some of the original contributors to Romancing the Tome, so a special mention to those people as well. Okay, so the book that we are primarily talking about today, Romancing the Tomes, is a collection of essays concerning uh, law, popular culture and feminism. It came about following a conference, Margaret, that you organised under the auspices of the Human Research, Humanities Research Centre at ANU back in 2000. Can you tell us a little bit about how the conference came about? Uh, thank you, Joe. Thank you very much for your generous uh, introduction, which I um, appreciate. So, um, this uh, At the end of the 90s, there was a lot of pressure on, on universities to become corporatized, to become more functional. And um, I have to uh, apologize for my croaky voice. It's not COVID, 
that I seem to have <laughs> developed a, a slight cough. Um, so at, at the end of the 90s, then, this, this move to corporatize, um, I think, was, was uh, rather a problem because we had um, a strong um, feminist, um, uh, a mass feminist scholars uh, at La Trobe and elsewhere, and I was keen to do something um, uh, for my colleagues who felt uh, somewhat beleaguered because our, uh, our restructure had brought about a change from our affiliation with um, uh, a faculty of social sciences to one of management and economics, which uh, suggests you know, the particular orientation um, that the university had in mind. So it seemed to be important to do something from a feminist perspective and to take account of the, um, the various um, uh, elements of expertise that people had both uh, at La Trobe and, uh, and uh, elsewhere. And so when this uh, opportunity came up um, from the ANU, uh, that's what we seized upon. Thank you, Margaret. Um, who were some of the presenters? So, uh, well, uh, Anne, who's here today, was one of them. And there was also Judy Gerbich, Sandy Cook, Sue, Sue Davies, Savendo uh, Pereira, Carolyn Strange, uh, Isabel Carpen, Terry Threadgold, uh, Nance Hubert, and Paula Barron, or some of the others. So, um, and most of them are, um, are, are well known uh, as feminist scholars uh, still today. And how was the conference received? Well, I think it was uh, received very positively. Um, it was uh, a creative and uh, enjoyable project. The first time that something quite like this had been done, looking at the, uh, the nexus between uh, law and popular culture, um, both from the perspective of those with expertise in, uh, um, in the media, history, literary studies, but also looking at the way uh, popular culture impacted upon judges uh, themselves. Uh, and when I mentioned to several of the contributors uh, that this talk was going to take place, uh, they were quite nostalgic for the, uh, the pleasure, I think, involved in attending a conference for two days, a dinner, and having a sort of, uh, you know, high level of, of creativity. Uh, but I guess um, COVID and lockdowns has really uh, increased that sense of nostalgia. Yeah, and even I'm uh, feeling nostalgic for 2019 <laughs> conferences. Um, so it's interesting to me to reflect on the fact that this conference uh, was organised through the Humanities Research Centre. Um, who had adopted their theme for 2000 as Law and the Humanities. Was there much transdisciplinary work happening in Law and the Humanities or Law and law, Humanities and femi Feminism at that time here in Australia? Uh, yes, I think it was quite strong. I think the feminist movement, I think, had um, depended very much on the humanities and the social sciences. Uh, law uh, came in a little bit later. But then it embraced uh, feminism 
and uh, the notion of transdisciplinarity, uh, I think, um, with, with a passion. And so during the 90s, there were, there were quite a few uh, monographs published and also uh, dynamic uh, articles. And um, also the Australian Feminist Law Journal was established um, then under the leadership of Judy Gerbich at that time. And uh, it favoured a transdisciplinary approach that was recognised that one couldn't look uh, at law in, in isolation. Um, and, of course, there had been an, uh, an argument for some years that law could only be studied in context in law schools, uh, but um, not all law schools accepted uh, that. But, I mean, it, I think it was central to the notion to, to feminism that there be uh, a broader transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary uh, approach um, to the nature of knowledge. Um, so the essays in the final collection cover a range of media, including true and fictional crime stories, the movie Pretty Woman, Judy Gerbich wrote on, the website Jail Babes, the Australian pub, Australian jurisprudence, and a novel by a former justice of the High Court of Australia, which we will get to shortly. You said in your opening chapter in this collection and I quote, the reflexive potential of popular culture possesses a significant discursive power. What did you mean by that? And what does law and popular culture scholarship offer that perhaps um, law and literature scholarship, for example, does not offer? Um, well, I suppose it's, it's similar, except um, popular culture is much broader, so that it includes uh, film, it includes um, the internet. Uh, it includes uh, texts that wouldn't really qualify as literature, such as uh, uh, true crime, uh, for example. Um, and uh, it also meant, uh, you know, the, the study um, of uh, judgments, which are not don't always <laughs> qualify as literature either. So there was actually a very broad canvas which I think was um, an innovative way uh, of approaching um, this, uh, this uh, issue uh, in, in thinking about law in quite different ways. Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, when I think about some of the law and popular culture or law and humanities work that's happened in Australia since then, it is a lot more recently that we've um, gotten into areas like comic books or law and geography or, um, yeah, so I can see how this was really trailblazing back in 2000. And as you point out in the collection, uh, popular culture has that sense that it belongs to everyone and it negates the hierarchy that we often get when we think about literature as opposed to popular fiction. So, yeah, there was something... Um, broad and inclusive, I think, in popular culture that really uh, worked in this collection. Yes, and I mean, there had been work on law and literature for quite a long time, um, but I think uh, it was because, you know, it was often men who, say, looked at the role of law in Dickens' Bleak House or something like that. And so every year at law and literature uh, conferences, there would be this, this sort of approach but it tend to be a rather, a rather narrow canvas. And so 
uh, as with all good feminist scholarship, um, the, uh, the group involved here was keen to disrupt um, that uh, traditional thinking. Um, so I would like to move on and talk a little bit about um, Ian Callanan's novel, which uh, you wrote about as one of your contributions to the edited collection. Uh, so your piece is called The Illusion of the Real in Ian Callanan's The Lawyer and the Libertine, and it's an expanded version of a review of the novel that you wrote uh, for the Sydney Law Review. So for those of you who don't know, and I was one of them as a New Zealander, Ian Callanan served as a judge on the bench of the High Court of Australia uh, from 1998 to 2007. The Lawyer and the Libertine was the first of 10 novels and a number of plays that he has published to date. He's still going strong, as I understand it. Uh, as someone who reads Regency romances in her spare time, uh, with titles like Daring and the Duke or The Soldier's Scoundrel, I have to say that I was initially disappointed to learn that The Lawyer and The Libertine was about the rivalry of two Aussie blokes who practice law. For those of you who haven't had the pleasure of reading that novel, uh, The Lawyer and the Libertine concerns a bitter rivalry between two men who were briefly friends as children in 1930s New South Wales. The novel follows the trajectory of their lives through adolescence, university and World War II service, their careers and their relationships. Stephen Metmore, the lawyer becomes the Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia, while George Dice, the libertine, becomes a lawyer and a Labour politician, eventually achieving the status of Attorney General. I'm just going to read you briefly from um, Margaret's essay chapter where she elegantly describes their characters. So, Dice, the libertine, is thoroughly reprehensible. He's a traitor, a blunderer, a hypocrite, a wife-beater, a violent, deceitful lecher, a vile libertine, a voluptuary. His career as a lawyer-turned-politician, together with some of the events in which he engages, suggests that he is based on a pastiche of real labour men. Uh, yeah. And he is depicted as an icon of the Labour Party who is utterly contemptible. In contrast, we have uh, Stephen Mentmore, the lawyer of the title. Margaret's description says, while he is not a particularly likable character either, we are expected to admire and respect him. He is described as a narrow, fastidious man and a social neuter, whose lack of imagination induced some to say that his mind ran on railway lines. We are nevertheless informed on many occasions that he is brilliant, although the evidence in support of this claim is somewhat thin, as he seems to possess not an iota of insight, reflexivity or vision about either law or life. Readers are expected to accept that technical ability and skill in devising ways around regulation are equated with brilliance. Justice for Mentmore would seem to be incidental, but when we know that when we know that law and justice are not the same thing at all. So what is of interest here, Margaret goes on to say, is that Mentmore, the quintessential legal positivist, arch-conservative, and Barak-like figure is presented as an ideal lawyer and judge. So 
First and foremost, Margaret, as a reader, what did you make of the novel? Um, well, I think the, the little bits that you read from that uh, sort of give uh, an intimation of my uh, feeling because the characterizations are clunky, heavy-handed and one-dimensional. Um, but nevertheless, I did find it fascinating because of the uh, attempt by Callanan to reimagine um, the masculinist world of law and politics, which had already disappeared um, or largely disappeared by the 1990s. Um, and, uh, and because um, the, the novel is set uh, over a 50-year period from the 1930s to the 1980s, um, and uh, he, uh, Caledon, includes their uh, real events all the way through. And, um, and I found it fascinating that the way then uh, the two leading char characters, Moore and Dice, are so closely based upon or meant to be based upon um, Barwick uh, and Lionel Murphy, so real people, which was just extraordinary. Um, and also, I mean, it's, uh, the other thing is just how uh, strong Callanan is uh, in his view, his condemnation um, of um, Dice and admiration of, of Mentmore, who is described, I was going to read this, um, then uh, Mentmore is described as a man of immense intellect, we don't see any evidence of, and of Olympian principles. That's despite his adultery with Dice's wife, no less. And Dice depicted as uh, despicable. And um, quote, to quote Callanan, he's the architect of all that's evil, traitor, blunderer, hypocrite, and wife beater. I also like the description of the Labour Party. Don't like it, but it's interesting how the sins of Dice then are projected onto the Labour Party and which I can quote, uh, which is condemned for um, its communism, arrogance, corruption, favoritism, sloth, venality, deceit, atheism, extravagance, and immorality. So, <laughs> and you say that doesn't compare with Georgian romances. <laughs> <laughs> the sex scenes are very lacking, Margaret, in this book. <laughs> the sex scenes? Oh, the sex scenes are there. <laughs> I wouldn't give them any more. They're very bold. <laughs> you know what? Uh, Margaret Dice says to me more, um, would you like to fuck me now, please, soon? <laughs> and that's it. There's nothing subtle about it, but there are six scenes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, so your critical reading focused on the way in which Mentmore is presented as the ideal lawyer and then judge in the novel, and you've used the term benchmark lawyer in this piece, but also in your work elsewhere. Can you tell us a bit more about that language and how it re relates to Stephen Mentmore? Yes, well, Benchmark Man is a, a shorthand form that I developed uh, when I was writing about um, discrimination law. 
So uh, to describe someone who is white, anglo kilty heterosexual, able-bodied, uh, who favours a right of centre politics and is nominally Christian. So rather than say all of that as the benchmark, so I just coined this, this term, benchmark man. And so meant more very much then fits into um, the, the, that description. Even though he grew up in modest circumstances, uh, like Dice, they both grew up in, in, in a, a mascot, uh, meant more. Um, shows no interest whatsoever in social justice, uh, and he quickly moved to the North Shore and um, acted for wealthy clients, um, known colloquially as the, as the carriage trade. Uh, and his most notable uh, client was Dinny O'Hearn, um, probably based on Warwick uh, Fairfax, so uh, a media baron. Uh, who was very influential. And so when uh, it was, there was to be a new Chief Justice, Dinny O'Hearn rang up the Prime Minister and said, uh, Stephen Metmore will be the next Chief Justice. So just like that, uh, it, it, it occurred. And which shows, you know, the power, and we know that there's no transparency or criteria uh, that's publishable uh, in terms of the appointment of, of judges. So, you know, that was interesting, the creation of this world or this idealised world, which is why I, I used um, Baudrillard. So he talks about uh, the, the construction of the hyperreal, which is more real than the real. So that this world that Callanan uh, then creates and describes uh, is an imagined world or the world he thinks that should exist, which is a total, totally a masculinist world uh, in which uh, women appear um, only as, as mothers um, and uh, sexual partners, uh, basically, uh, and professional. Well, there are no professional women apart from the Chief Justice who emerges miraculously from nowhere, but there's no discussion of, of women in law uh, even though women uh, by that stage, uh, and indeed uh, by the mid-80s, uh, comprised 50% of law students um, in, in New South Wales. Yeah. Um, is Dice also a benchmark man? So in, in this book, Dice is very much... Uh, the bad guy, and he, um, in contrast to Mentmore, is um, from an Irish Catholic background, um, is a bit of a rugby league player, a, a sort of a boozy womaniser who we um, then find out is actually a rapist and a committer of domestic violence. Um, I think today we would probably just lump him under the white male category but perhaps back in that time, there was that real distinction between Catholic and Protestant that we don't see as much in today's time. Yeah, well, that's true, and it, and it comes out quite strongly, and, and that stress um, that um, there was somehow this, these tribal connections uh, between those who went to um, Catholic boys' schools that didn't, have, it didn't occur otherwise with those who had a sort of Protestant 
background. So there, that is a distinction one could make that has, you know, changed somewhat, yes. It's funny, I've just, as you know, been at home in New Zealand with my mum and out of nowhere she remembered uh, going to school in Whanganui, which is a small town in probably the 1950s, and she was nominally Protestant and they would chant something nasty at the Catholics as they passed them on the way to school and the Catholics would chant something nasty back at them. So it's really interesting to reflect on those divisions which we just don't, are not so aware of these days. Yes, um, but, but I still think that the, the benchmark man has a sort of nominal um, uh, Christianity um, if he has any religion at all. So, in other words, he is not going to be Muslim or, you know, something that is outside those still fairly, um, fairly narrow parameters. Uh, so you mentioned um, Shirley Leem. So Shirley Leem is in the novel um, The Chief Justice That Replaces Mentmore, who retires early due to illness. Uh, and Shirley is um, introduced to us in the first chapter. So the book is structured so that we start at the end of uh, Mentmore's career and then we go back to his childhood and progress chronologically. Um, so as you point out in your piece, Shirley Leem is described as unscrupulous and ambitious, a literal and figurative ball breaker, and someone who is physically unattractive. Notwithstanding the latter, she is presented as someone who slept her way to the top of her profession rather than getting there on merit. From the vantage point of 2021, that sounds like an all too familiar, tired and sexist stereotype. Have our perceptions of women judges or other women in positions of power moved on from that stereotype, do you think? And to what extent? Well, they probably have. But I think, I think this construction of Shirley uh, Lean um, or Lee May, I'm not sure how she's supposed to, supposed to pronounce her name, um, is a crass uh, stereotype. But I think it's part of this construction of the hyperreal. Uh, that Callanan is interested in. I mean, here is a woman, you know, so he's got the token woman. That's what she is. There's only this, what she's the one lawyer who emerges and, and she's only given a few lines at the beginning and uh, at, at the end. And she uh, encompasses uh, all these um, very crass stereotypes about women, you know, they're totally unworthy, um, unscrupulous, um, incompetent, um, and, you know, uh, they're only interested in sex, even if they're ugly. And so um, um, Callan and then he has this group of women whom he finds attractive. They all have large breasts. And then there's a, an, another group uh, who are very unattractive. And uh, uh, Shirley Lean is, uh, is uh, uh, one of those. So, of course, it is a dated stereotype. But we do see it emerging periodically. Uh, and uh, this I found particularly interesting uh, because of the way um, Callanan has um, included her in his ideal world. Uh, I mean, she's just there, but she's unworthy uh, of playing, playing the part uh, at all. Um, yeah, she serves a plot device. So... As we've said, the, the novel is about the rivalry between these two men. Um, 
she is Dice's nomination to this role to replace more. So, yeah, we know very little about her except what is reported about her, and she is there to score one more point against Mentmore before Mentmore finally uh, wins this battle by um, revealing Dice's corruption, which gets him kicked out of the government. So, um, yeah, we don't get any sense of her as a person or a lawyer or even a judge. She's simply there as a, another point to score between these two men. She's not going to be competent like Mentmore, uh, who always deferred to precedent. She's going to be a centralist, which has seemed to be, you know, uh, anathema uh, to Callanan. Yeah, very much so. Um, so in 2017, you wrote a piece with Heather Roberts, uh, which was um, looking at women lawyers and in particular at Ian McEwan's character, Fiona May from the Children's Act. Um, and you also wrote about uh, the swearing-in ceremony of Justice Sharon Johns when she joined the bench of the Family Court of Australia. Um, do you want to say something about that and how those two women differ from this flat, stereotypical description that we get of Sharon? Oh, well, they, they certainly do, yes. Well, uh, Sharon Johns, um, I mean, she was in a same-sex relationship and, and what was interesting about her swearing-in ceremony was that this was the first time uh, that uh, that had been acknowledged um, by um, the, the senior legal officials who introduce um, the, the new judge. And she also had her young son, four years old, um, in, in the court. And so I thought that was uh, a really interesting uh, example then of uh, increasing diversity that we saw and the acknowledgement of it um, by... Uh, senior officials. Thank you. Um, so, as I said, I've just finished reading um, The Lawyer and the Libertine, and I couldn't help um, but read it in the context of the March for Justice that we saw earlier this year and all of the allegations of sexual violence against um, leading male figures, both in Parliament House and earlier, the High Court bench. Um, uh, there is a third character in this novel who, called Lester, who is, um, as you know, a journalist and later an editor. He also comes from the same small town as Dyson Mentmore, and he's presented as a sort of uh, neutral arbiter between them. So he's on friendly terms with both of them, um, although I would say they are superficially friendly terms. And uh, even after seeing the physical damage that Dice inflicts upon his wife, who um, is beaten up when Dice learns that she's having an affair with Mentmore, um, he continues to be on friendly terms with Dice, even though he admits to being uncomfortable around Dice and seeking to avoid him. So I just wanted to read you something that you wrote about um, benchmark masculinity in this piece, which I thought was interesting when we think about characters like Lester. So you said, the novel also shows how benchmark masculinity is ethically corrupt, 
corrosive, a phenomenon that may be less obvious. I am not talking about corruption on the overt scale attributed to DICE. So there was a political money corruption scandal around DICE, but about the way that this granting of reciprocal favours has come to be accepted as a permanent subtext of fraternity. The ready acceptance of the exchange of favours as the basis of the homosociality of public and professional life suggests why women are still regarded as intrusive others within the jurisprudential community. And it sort of seems to me that part of that um, idea of favouritism or reciprocity is uh, is or has been about men looking the other way when there are suggestions or evidence even of sexual inappropriateness all the way through to sexual violence. And I just wondered if you wanted to reflect a bit on that. Um, well, yes, thank you for bringing that up. I think it is, uh, it is clearly apt uh, when we think about the recent brouhaha in, uh, in Parliament House and other examples so I have been interested in the way these homosocial bonds then are developed uh, in uh, boys' private schools, basically, and then carry on uh, into, um, you know, university uh, and uh, into various workplaces. And we do see that. I mean, even in the, in the, uh, the university, I, we, we see that, uh, you know, not in an overt uh, since, uh, but more subtly, the, the little put-downs that the women receive all the time, uh, the approbation that male colleagues uh, might receive, and often when they they articulate an idea that that women have just uh, just raised is very familiar. And I, but I think it's still part of that um, that um, homosocial world that's created, or fraternal world, if you like. Um, I think it's very strong, which is one of the reasons I'm, I'm very uh, opposed to boys, uh, you know, schools for boys only, particularly, I mean, boys' private schools. And, and, and that was, we know, uh, something that came out uh, as, as a result of the uh, uh, Brittany Higgins and, uh, and the other issues within, within uh, Parliament House, although there's not very much said about that. Uh, partly because, you know, the state is actually funding these uh, schools to a very uh, significant degree, which I think is, you know, makes a mockery then of attempts to, um, to address these issues through sexual harassment policies and, and, you know, telling men that they have to then undergo one hour or two hour training in sexual harassment after these years of, uh, of indoctrination. Uh, in terms of uh, developing these fraternal bonds, which are so, you know, deeply cemented, which is why after all these years, um, one can look back and say, well, you know, the, the, what we see with the lawyer and the liberty, you know, just because it was sort of written at the end of last century <laughs> doesn't mean um, that it's actually out of date, um, that I think it, uh, it continues and it's not just in terms of women, I should say, in terms of the legal profession, uh, but um, we do see the resistance to diversity generally. Um, so in terms of race, ethnicity, sexuality uh, uh, as well, which is 
very clearly borne out by the statistics. So if you look at um, the judiciary, for example, I think the population of Asians in Australia is about, the percentage is about 9.6. What is the percentage of judges? About, you know, barely 1%. So, you know, so you can see then um, this idea, the resistance to the other, so that the idea of the benchmark man uh, is very much then uh, part of the culture which we discount by and large, society tends to discount it or not pay attention to the way that it's developed because there are these other interests about, well, at sometimes um, the rubric of religions used, although most of these uh, schools, it's, a, it's an issue of class, not religion anyway. Um, so, um, yes, so, yes, I feel strongly about <laughs> this issue. <laughs> so it's, it's not the benchmark uh, masculinity is not, not an an outdated uh, idea, although sometimes I think, oh, yes, well, maybe that's a bit one-dimensional because I developed it, you know, 30 years ago or whatever. Uh, It must be, you know, it must be time for a reappraisal. But then something like the Parliament House fiasco occurs, and I think, no, it's not out of date. It's it's still current. That's the disappointing thing, isn't it, that it is still current? Yeah. Yeah. Margaret, I want to take you back to 1991 now and the, I think, I believe it was your inaugural lecture at La Trobe University entitled Portia Lost in Groves of the Academy, Wondering What to Do About Legal Education, um, which traces the tension in Western legal education between law as a siloed discipline for practitioners and law as part of what we call a broader liberal education You note that the transdisciplinary approach of feminist scholars offers a model for an integrated social legal approach to legal education, one which will enable Portia as enlightened legal practitioner, judge, academic, lawmaker, law reformer and citizen to implement her vision of a more diverse and caring jurisprudential community. I wanted to start by asking you about the title. For me, it conjures up a woman in Roman robes wandering alone in a forest amongst the ruins of antiquity. Why did you choose that title and what does it evoke for you? Well, I probably wouldn't choose it today and it might sound a bit grandiose. I wasn't necessarily thinking of myself as Portia, but of of women, uh, you know, coming into law and to have to think about um, legal education in a creative way, what might be done and how difficult it was really going to be. And so with that idea of the, you know, the, the groves and so on, I was thinking of how one can be entangled in a, in a thicket because of the long-lived policies and laws that one has to actually deal with and how resistant legal positivism is to change. And we know it. I mean, it's still uh, dominant today if you look at the uh, uh, judging um, uh, it's absolutely uh, do- dominant. It's very hard to move to move out of um, that um, that particular paradigm, positivistic paradigm, and to do something in a in a, a different way. So it's um, so Portia. I mean, she she's of course a you know <laughs> a figment of the imagination, uh, like the lawyer and the and, and the libertine. Um, but, you know, she's one of the few um, sort of um, uh, 
um, literary figures um, who is a, a lawyer, you know, a, a female lawyer. She's not a handmaid. I mean, she, she's someone, she's her own woman, and she appears as a woman of authority, even though it's in male drag, <laughs> which I, I admit is a, which, which is a problem and why, of course, the, the figure of Portia is, is a somewhat ambiguous one. I acknowledge that. <laughs> and indeed, I remember one of my colleagues, uh, uh, former colleagues in Dunganson, was critical of me for, for using uh, Portia uh, for, for that uh, reason. But, uh, you know, it was the positive, it was the, for the positive uh, uh, side of her character that appealed to me. Yeah, and it's really interesting. I don't know if you know this, Margaret. I've read somewhere about... Um, in the 19th century in particular, a sort of trend of women writing the early lives of Shakespeare's women. So you had a couple of authors who wrote um, fictional accounts of Portia and other leading female figures from Shakespeare. And so they had a real currency at the same time that women were starting to go to law school, particularly in the United Kingdom. And so I think when the first women graduated, the, uh, the newspaper headlines was Portia has now graduated law school so she's yeah she she gets picked up like the handmaid um, and used in different ways by different people which is fascinating to watch um, so I'm aware that we are coming towards the end of our time so I thought I would ask Anne Genovese to rejoin our conversation um, or in fact and should we just go straight to questions maybe we'll go straight to questions um, Margaret, thank you so much for chatting with me today. It's been a real pleasure for me and I could uh, go on for hours and hours, but I'm aware that we've got um, a really great audience with us and so perhaps we should let them uh, chat with you now. Well, thank you so much for interviewing me. I, I enjoyed that and I'm honoured uh, to have been uh, invited to speak to you. Um, thank you, Joe and Margaret, and I'm sure um, everyone well, it's the time to bring everybody else in. And I think um, to take the prerogative of the um, pseudo chair for today, I, I think in our conversations before we began, uh, Joe was going to invite Margaret and I to kind of reflect as a final point, which might be a good way to tip into opening up the conversation um, about why now that we've heard from Margaret, you know, the snapshot through the conference and through the book of the absolutely integral work that feminist scholars did in bringing a concept of transdisciplinarity to law, to the legal academy, um, and to see that as an inherent critical method to address the, um, the rationality of the legal enterprise and the uh, positivist um, um, conduct of how jurisprudential training occurred. So, you know, there's somebody who and I'd like to hear from the, perhaps the other people who are at that conference. The year 2000 was kind of um, important because throughout the 90s we felt, because of work like Margaret and many other people who I can see on, on the, in the room here today, for younger scholars like me who are younger at that time, it offered an opportunity to think that you could do this work. There were, there were journals, there were um, books published by Oxford University Press, there were conferences funded by the ANU that gave the possibility for the uh, seriousness of a feminist and transdisciplinary uh, jurisprudential exercise to have that, that kind of status. And I think, you know, Joe was sort of pondering, asking us this about why 
you know, that was after 2000 or was that, you know, a key moment in time why there might still be such resistance to feminist scholarship in law or to thinking about the um, integral uh, critical interventions that feminist scholarship has made, including and in particular its leadership in law and humanities disciplines. So, I mean, it's more of a comment, but um, I'll use that as a way to maybe open up um, for others. But, Margaret, did you have anything you wanted to say about that? Um, proposition why there might still be such resistance to feminist scholarship? Is it another carry-on of the benchmark male writ large into how we all do our work? Uh, well, I think I think it's threatening, basically. I mean, it, it, uh, feminist scholarship threatens the integrity of that homosocial world that we've been talking about uh, and that is depicted, depicted so clearly uh, in Callanan's uh, novel. So um, it's all right uh, to teach feminist legal theory in a, in a separate uh, optional course, but it's still uh, resisted uh, within, the, within the mainstream, even though there was an attempt in the 90s and some money uh, from, the, from the Keating government to develop um, uh, gender-sensitive gender uh, materials for all students. So when I've asked people about that today, they've never heard of these materials, even though they were sent to all law schools and made available on the internet. They seem to have quickly uh, uh, disappeared from sight. I mean, I think it's a really interesting question. I know some of the students who are in the feminist jurisprudence legal research subject are with us now, but it's, I mean, I would really be interested to see how others in the room have encountered that question, including how they've, you know, thinking with materials from the humanities in, in their courses. But there's the this constant tension between is do we have a standalone subject or do we tr attempt to incorporate and show leadership in how those feminist methodologies have infiltrated into other um, parts of the curriculum? And I guess I suppose my um, position is you need both, but um, I'd be really uh, so. Look, I just want to, um, I know people have to leave, so I just first of all want to thank you all for coming and it's been just, you know, fantastic to have this opportunity to hear uh, Joe and Margaret in conversation. Um, I and to see many of you again, and to like recreate this kind of community and this kind of conversation, which is what I think is um, somebody's excellent suggestion in 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 having this as an event to commemorate Ella. It's not just to think backwards to what has been achieved, but forward into in terms of the you know a existing community of scholars. That's broadening all the time so we can um, relate to each other and continue this fantastic kind of work to think how it responds to things in the, in the current circumstance. Uh, I think that's all for today. Um, uh, Sunday, anything you want to say to advertise the next session before we go? <laughs> <laughs> Please go to the uh, ILA website because I think we've uh, got the festival off to a great start. Um, Okay, so thank you all very much. Um, for those who are uh, currently enrolled in the feminist jurisprudence subject, I will see you soon at 2.15. And um, thank you again to Joanna and Margaret. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Margaret. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash illa podcast. That's double I L A H.
Podcast.